Good morning. We made it. I think we made it another time around the sun, another Christmas down. You got the uh, wrapping paper picked up off the floor and in the trash can like it's supposed to be. You did all the things one more time. And there's this uh, little week after Christmas and before the next year starts where we're in between and we're full of nostalgia and looking back and thinking about did the year go by fast or slow and what are we going to do next year and it would be easy I think at that time of year to very hastily run ahead and move away from the story that kept our attention during the Christmas and Advent season which is the birth of Christ Uh, I love that we think about the birth of Christ once a year but I, I hate that we probably only think about it once a year Uh, that it's a story that that only takes one part of the calendar the rest of the time we move on to other things Uh, we'll be on our way to Easter soon enough before we move on from it I'd like to take just a moment to remind you that the the story of the birth of Christ has in fact always loomed larger than we probably give it credit for in the history of the church In fact, there have been times in church history where it was wildly controversial and subject of great debate. Uh, If you can join me in a little nerddom this morning, uh, I'll tell you the story of the Third Ecumenical Council. I didn't know you were getting that one this morning, did you? The story of the Third Ecumenical Council, the famous one was the first one at Nicaea in 325, but in 431 there was a huge debate in the church. The church as it existed at that time across Europe and the Mediterranean was on the verge of splitting over a particular doctrine being taught by a guy named Nestorius, who was a bishop. And Nestorius said, um, we need to be careful about how we talk about Jesus' birth and about Mary in particular, because we don't want to give people the wrong idea about God. God cannot be born. God is not born. God does not die. God is eternal. Jesus was born. Jesus died. And so he says, it's one thing to say Mary was the mother of Christ, the bearer of Christ, Christikos is the Greek term for it. He said, but we should never call Mary Theotokos, the mother of God, the God bearer. That would be too much. We shouldn't say that. It was a big deal uh, because there was a lot of people that liked to call Mary the mother of God. So they called a big council and everyone came down, all the bishops and so forth. They show up at Ephesus in 431 and they have a big debate about it. And Cyril of Alexandria shows up and he defends the other position. He says, that sounds nice what you just said, but the problem is you've turned Jesus into two people. You have God on the one hand and Jesus on the other and you're treating them separately as if God was just another person living inside of this human person, Jesus, like they're two different guys. He said the whole point of the incarnation is not that God happened to reside in Jesus' body, it's that Jesus is God. It's that God went to the cross, that God was crucified, that God was raised, and that means God was born in the person of Jesus Christ. In some mysterious way, that means Mary has to be Theotokos, the mother of God. Otherwise, Jesus is two people. You're riveted by this discussion yet? You have this one at dinner table all the time? This was a real live issue in 431. Churches were splitting over it, and the council voted, and they decided Nestorius was, in fact, when you thought about it, a heretic, and they decided Cyril was correct. That the only way the gospel works 
mysterious as it may be, is if Jesus is one person. He is not God and man separately. He is God and man. That Jesus, God in flesh, was born and lived and died for us. And that was the only way the story works. The story of the birth of Jesus, therefore, played a large part in that. And that wasn't the first time it had happened. We can back up about 400 years, actually, where the birth of Jesus Christ actually played a role in the very first argument the church ever had. We can back up to the year 47, 48 AD, and it's just 15 years or so after the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the sermon on the day of Pentecost. For about 15 years, the gospel has been preached, and now uh, in the late 40s AD, the apostles are starting to go to Gentiles with the gospel for the first time. They're going into Asia Minor, into the region known as Galatia, and to its various cities, and they're preaching the gospel. And there are Gentiles, pagans, who are saying, we believe what you're teaching, which is remarkable, because as hard as it was to explain that whole set of ideas of the gospel to Jewish people, it was even harder to explain it to a Gentile who believed in myriad gods and believed that death was a one-way street. There, there's no sense in ancient paganism that anybody is resurrected. You die and you're dead like Rover, dead all over. You go one way down the street to Hades, you cross the Styx River, and you stay there. And here were these Christians saying, not only can it be undone, it was once. That Jesus of Nazareth came back to us and lives forevermore. And the Gentiles were believing that persuasive gospel. But what did that mean for them? The promises of the Messiah, of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been promises that were made to the Jewish people. Could they really be extended to Gentiles? How could a Gentile ever be what a Jew was, a child of God? The problem was that Gentiles were not the children of Abraham. They had no biological descent. They had no connection. They had no history. They had no family tie. They weren't the same people. The whole point of the Jesus story was that the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise made by the Jewish prophets in the Jewish law, had come to pass in the Jewish lands by the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. And so what possible value could it be to a Gentile? What hope could we ever extend to them? They simply weren't heirs of the promises. But some people thought that maybe they had a solution. It was actually, if you think about it, kind of a generous solution. Now, in hindsight, it looks very mean-spirited, but at the time, it was really generous. There were some of the Jewish people that said, you know, one of the things that makes me Jewish is I keep the Jewish law. Maybe if you Gentiles would keep the Jewish law, then God will treat you like he treats us. This wasn't unheard of. There were proselytes who converted to the Jewish faith, who accepted the Jewish law and lived after a fashion according it, and over time began to be treated more or less like Jewish people. It wasn't unheard of. And so if you think about it in that way, it was a generous offer. These promises that have never been for you, never once in human history have these promises ever been extended to you, will let you in on it. All you need to do is do what we do, which was keep the law of Moses. And then by keeping the law of Moses, God 
can start treating you the way he treats us. Paul, while I'm sure acknowledged that that was in some way generous, said it's actually a bigger problem than that. And so he writes in 48 AD the letter we now know as the letter to the Galatians. Starts to circulate. And it's his explanation of this particular problem. In chapter 2, he states the problem. Verse 15 begins, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's just as clear as it gets. That's, that's the problem, right? I am a Jew. I was born a Jew. I'll die a Jew. He says, that's who I am. That's my birth. Not only am I not a Gentile, I'm definitely not a Gentile sinner, right? You got Jews and you got pagans. And there's a huge chasm in between there. And the problem was, how could they ever be part of the same family and promises? Yet we know, he says, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through, through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by Christ and not by works of the law. He says we can't miss this important fact. This is right at the core of the gospel. That what we're saying is Jesus saves. And people were willing to accept that, but they wanted to add things to it. Jesus sa saves as long as. Jesus saves if you do the following. Jesus saves on the condition that. And Paul says that's not the way it works. See his, his reasoning? If you got two people, you got a Jew and a Gentile, and both of them believes in Jesus, he says we have to extend to them the same promises. If one of them keeps the law and that saves him, and the other one doesn't keep the law, and that keeps him lost, then it was never faith in Christ that saved you, it was keeping the law. He says, and that's not what we're preaching. We're preaching that it's Jesus himself and our trust in him that saves. And that means it can't be anything else. And that includes the law. The law doesn't make you a child of God. In fact, he ends the verse by saying, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He saw, and this is what great thinkers do, you see a problem and then you get right down underneath the problem and say, actually, there's a bigger misunderstanding here that we're not, un we're not getting. Not even Jews became children of Abraham by keeping the law. Jewish people kept the law because they were the children of Abraham. They didn't become children of Abraham by keeping the law. There were lots of Jewish people who didn't keep the law. In fact, I think Paul would argue, none of us ever really kept it perfectly. We didn't stop being the children of Abraham because it wasn't keeping the law that made us Abraham's descendants in the first place. It's just how we were born. We keep the law because we're Abraham's children, not in order to become Abraham's children. So his point is, if the law doesn't make Jews Jewish, it definitely can't make Gentiles Jewish, because that's not what it's for. Well, that's nice, but now the problem is actually worse, because that was the only solution they had. Gentiles were outside the law and outside the promises. Paul comes along and says, the law can't make you Jewish, and the law definitely can't make you a child of Abraham, and it can't make you a child of God. Okay, great, Paul. What else do we got? What do we have? What can we ever do that would take a Gentile 
and make him a descendant of Abraham and an heir of the promises of God. And it's at this point then, a few chapters later, that Paul does something really unexpected, especially for Paul. It's Galatians chapter 4, which will be our text today, verses 4 through 7. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Tell you what's crazy about that sentence all on its own. The year is 48 AD. You say, okay, so what? The book of Matthew isn't going to be written for decades. The book of Mark isn't going to be written for decades. The book of Luke, the book of John. Not a single word of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had been written at this point. In fact, not a single word of the New Testament had been written in 48 AD. The book of Galatians is quite possibly the first word that had been written that would end up in our New Testament. So do you understand? Paul isn't going home at night and reading Matthew and saying, ah, there's the solution, and then writing a letter to the Galatians. It doesn't exist. We can go a step further. Not only does he not have Matthew, Mark, and Luke and so forth to to refer to, because the New Testament hasn't been written, Paul himself has to be the least likely apostle to know anything about the birth of Jesus. You remember the other disciples traveled around with Jesus in his life and ministry, and they went around Galilee, and they went to Capernaum, and they went to Samaria, and they went to Judea, and they saw him crucified, and they also hung out with Mary. We know that Mary made appearances at various times in the story. She was there in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples gather after the resurrection. Mary was around. So in principle, some of them might know something about that day Jesus was born and how peculiar it was and how remarkable it was. Paul is not one of them. Paul receives the gospel when Jesus himself appears to him on the road to Damascus. And when you read the writings of Paul, that's what it sounds like. Jesus is crucified, Jesus is raised, that is the gospel for Paul. In fact, he comes right out and says it. In 1 Corinthians, he says, this is of first importance, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, is buried according to the scriptures, is raised according to the scriptures, that's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You can read every letter that Paul wrote, and you will never find a reference to the birth of Jesus in anything that he wrote, except right here in his very first letter in response to the very first problem that Christians ever faced. He said, there is one thing I know. He doesn't give you a birth narrative. There's no wise men or shepherds, no angels we have heard on high. He says, but here's a thing I know. Jesus was born. He was born of a woman born under the law. Which one of those made him human? It wasn't the law of Moses. It was that he was born of a human woman. He doesn't even mention her name. He just says, this much I know. Jesus was born, and it happened. Why does that matter? The gospel begins with God himself, born of woman. Just like they were arguing about in 431 in Ephesus, It starts with God himself becoming one of us and being born. That's the first mystery. 
before you get to the cross and before you get to the empty tomb, he says there's a fact we have to reckon with. You want to know how a Gentile could ever be a child of Abraham? He says, I have a bigger problem to worry about. How did God become a child of a human mother? He says, that's a remarkable mystery. That should stop us in our tracks. It should make us reflect on everything we know and question it. And if God himself was born of a woman to redeem those, verse 5, who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons, if God himself is born of a human woman, that changes everything I know about everything. He came with a purpose. He came, he was born, he lived, he died, he is resurrected. But first he's born, and that mystery of his birth changes everything. He says, if God could be born of some woman like Mary, then who's to say a Gentile couldn't be a child of Abraham? All bets are off after God becomes one of us. The gospel then becomes, it begins with birth and new birth for everyone. As this idea develops, if you keep reading, kind of in chronological order, the teachings of Paul, the idea of new birth becomes very large for him. That you as a Christian are going to be a new creature. You're going to live a new life. The old life goes away. The new life begins. He starts talking about baptism as a birth. That something dies and something lives. Something is born and we begin a newness of life. Paul starts to teach that idea that you have as a kernel here in his first ever letter. Because Jesus was born, new birth becomes part of the gospel itself. And it changes everything. He says in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This verse launches all kinds of sermons because it's strange and mysterious. He uses almost the same language in his uh, crowning achievement. If Galatians is the first letter, the grand magnum opus, the best of the best, is the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 8, he uses almost the same expression. Like he's fascinated by this idea. What does it mean? Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit into, of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is just Aramaic for father. And you can argue with, uh, you can pull out your Bible dictionaries and decide, is it uh, an informal, does it mean like Papa or Daddy, or does it mean Father, is it just Aramaic? And it doesn't really matter. It's the word a child would use if you were Aramaic for their parent, for their father. Abba. And here's the mystery that he's trying to teach. And let me kind of wrap it all up here and make, make this point that he's making. The mystery of the birth of Christ is strange on more levels than we can ever pause to contemplate. God is the creator of the entire universe. God created Adam and Eve. God created Mary. God is responsible for every cell in Mary's body. He wrote and penned every letter of the DNA code that held her together. He knows her from top to bottom. She is a creature of his own creating. But one day, that same God put on flesh and was born of Mary and had to learn her name. What's a child's first words? If they're going to be good children, it's daddy. We all know that. 
for rotten children, it's mother, mama. So ponder that. The all-knowing, omniscient God who knows every one of us, everything we've done, everything we've thought, everything we will do. Once was an infant who learned to call Mary mother. Who learned that that face that held him at arm's length had a name. And he adored her. And he said, Mama. In the same way then, that God himself put on flesh and learned something new about his relationship with Mary. He says, God is going to have us be born again as well. And he's going to teach us to call him Father. We're going to know God in a new way. See what he's getting at here? The whole basis of this argument was that the Jewish person thought they already had a good relationship with God. Now Messiah had come. Now they have the promises, and this was for them. And if you wanted it, maybe you could have it if you became like them. And Paul says that's not the point. God became flesh and dwelled among us. That's a game changer. Everything's different now. Whatever relationship you had with God, or no relationship at all, if you were a pagan Gentile sinner who didn't know the name of God, or you were a good faithful Jew who prayed to Him every morning, there's a new birth, and we're all starting over fresh. And the same way that Jesus had to learn to call His mother Mary, mother, we have to learn a new relationship with God. It's a fresh start. A person who had been praying to God their entire life would now have to learn all over again what it meant to know God. Because the game had changed. He had become flesh. He had died. He had been resurrected. Everything's new. And so I couldn't count on my old relationship to make me good enough. I couldn't say I've said all my prayers and I've kept the law and I've done all these things. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Because Paul says that doesn't matter. We all have to start fresh. And the Gentile who had none of those things wasn't one step behind us. Because we're all learning to say Father again. It's something God is going to have to teach us as He holds us at arm's length and we learn to see His face all over again. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Every person, whoever they are, who is born again, stops being what they were and starts being something new. A new relationship. A child. And yes, an heir of every promise that had ever been made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many more. Every one of those now available to the Son. The problem, you see, you'll notice he changed wording there. You're no longer a slave, but a son. The problem wasn't that you weren't Jewish enough to be in God's family. That was never the problem. The problem was never being a Gentile. The problem was being a sinner. The problem was that when you were a pagan, you sinned and you didn't have a good relationship with God. And guess what? If you were Jewish, you sinned and you had a damaged and flawed relationship with God. You knew more about it. The law of Moses was really good at telling you all the things you were doing wrong. But you were in the same situation, the same boat, which is why we require a new birth. 
not because one is Gentile and one is Jewish, one is closer and one needs to start over, but because all of us were sinners. All of us were slaves to sin and not children of God. We needed a new birth. And that is what God accomplished. What's Paul's message here? It's a subtle little thing, but I think this is it. If God could be the child of Mary, is it so crazy that you could be a child of God? If a birth that mysterious, that the councils would debate for centuries, and I could still argue with today, I got questions. I got questions about the incarnation. I want to know what it means for God to become flesh and be born among us. But the gospel starts with the fact that that happened. If that happened, is it so crazy that you could be born again as well? That tomorrow you could be different than you are today? That everything you thought was your identity, the heritage of your family, the lineage of your birth, that everything that you thought made you who you are could simply pass and you could start being something new. Someone who looked up into your father's face and called him by name. Is that so crazy? If God could be the son of Mary, it's not really that crazy that you could become the son of God. Which is exactly what all the gospel writers would say when they finally got around to it. Paul was there ahead of time in 48 AD. The last gospel to be written was the gospel of John. And this is exactly what he taught. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. What is John saying? God himself, creator of the universe, came into our world and we didn't recognize him. But he came anyway. And what did he accomplish? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is in chapter 1 of John. John doesn't give you a birth narrative either. He doesn't talk about Mary very much. But he says he was born. He came into this world. The Creator came into this world. And because of that, you can be born again as well. Jew, Gentile, sinner with a capital S, or sinner with a lowercase s, pagan, atheist, skeptic, or just apostate Christian. Every one of us is being offered something new because God was born a woman born under the law. He came into this world for us, and now everything's changed. The challenge of that problem back in 48 AD was an idea that lives with us even today, that we really think deep down inside that there's something I've got to get just right in order to be God's child. And the story of the gospel is the opposite of that. What did we get right that led to God being born of woman? Folks, we had nothing to do with it. God just did it. What do I do in order to become a child of God? Do I keep a set of rules? Do I follow some instructions? The fact is, I have basically nothing to do with it. It is not an act of man's will, but of God's. The same God who caused himself to be born of Mary causes me to be born again. 
Everything I do is in response to that. Remember what Paul said? The Jew doesn't keep the law in order to become Jewish. He's Jewish, so he keeps the law. God has made it possible for me to be born again. And in response to that, I may do a great many things. I may start behaving as a child of God should. I may enter into the symbolic waters of baptism and come out again to live as his child. But it's not something that happened inside there, is it? There's not enough water in the world that could make me God's child any more than I could make God the son of Mary. It has to be an act of God himself. So today, as the year begins to wrap up and you're thinking about what you're going to be in the next year, as Steve mentioned, we have these things called resolutions because we're convinced that what we're going to be is a question of human will and commitment. That's a resolution. I resolve to do something. I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to wake up earlier. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat better. And if I just put my willpower to it, I can be the person I want to be. And what does every single year teach us about our willpower? It does not make us who we ought to be. Our willpower lasts about as far as the second week of January. We're going to be something different. Someone else is going to have to make us new. What you will be in 2024 has very little to do with your resolutions or human will or resolve. It is the trust you put in God that you may be born again and that he will make you what he would have you to be. If you want a resolution, it's to trust in yourself less and trust in him more. Because once God is born of Mary, all bets are off. And you can be anything he makes you to be. Today we're going to end with a closing song. And as we do that, I'll offer an invitation. An invitation to respond to this story not with another act of human willpower that manipulates God into making you his child, but the response to say, I trust in God completely, that by Jesus Christ, he is making me his child. And enact that and begin a year simply as his own. If you would respond to that gospel, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if you want to come, come on to the front.